0: Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Bird Watch, a New Orleans Pelicans podcast powered by NOAA.com. My name is Jeff Nowak. I'm your host. I'm uh, NOAA.com's digital sports producer. We're here to talk about sports, which don't exist right now, really, uh, at least not in the sense of playing games. And I have a great guest with me today. His name is uh, Dr. Rand McLean. He's the medical director of LCR Health based in Los Angeles. Uh, He specializes in sports and regenerative medicine. And he's worked with elite athletes and amateurs, and uh, those have included NBA players. And he runs a, his own practice in Santa Monica. And um, I wrote down Manhattan. That's not correct.
1: <laughs> Manhattan Beach.
0: Manhattan Beach. Uh, it was correct. I just didn't get the second part. And he's also been a pro kickboxer at one point. And uh, he's done some stunt work and a handful of acting roles. Uh, how are you doing, Rand? Thanks for joining.
1: I'm doing great. My pleasure to join.
0: So you also have, uh, you've played water polo for. Team USA in the uh, in the early 80s. Okay, tell me something about that? I've always been fascinated by water polo. It's a lot of treading water.
1: Yeah, well, most people ask you how the horses breathe underwater, but uh, <laughs> some people have heard of water polo. I hadn't really paid much mind to it until uh, I was on uh, a taper for regionals in wrestling, which to this day is my favorite sport. And I saw those guys in their Speedos talking about how hard water polo was. And I said, yeah, sure. And back then, if you held the ball, you could be placed underwater and held underwater as long as you held on to the ball. And anyway, I got in there and was going to show them how much tougher wrestlers are or myself in general. And man, they almost drowned me. And um, (laughs) about two weeks later, I I didn't make it past regionals and I signed up for the water polo team. That was my junior year. And anyway, things took off from there and I, I enjoyed every minute of it.
0: My older brother used to dunk me underwater too, so I guess maybe he was—he was really just practicing for his future career in water polo. I didn't know it, um, but we're—we're uh, we're not here to talk about water polo. We're here to talk about uh, primarily the NBA. This is a Pelicans podcast. Um, but you've worked with NBA athletes in your practice, which is uh, talk about that. You know, what are you geared toward in terms of as you work with these high-level amateurs and these professional athletes? What are you—what are you looking at?
1: Well. I'm looking to help them any way I can. These obviously are some of the best athletes in the world and certainly the best at their sport. So what I do is I try and take someone who's already at the top and squeeze another percent maybe or two out of out of them uh, in terms of what I can affect. I can't help them necessarily with their skills in a jump shot, but if they've got, for example, uh, sore knees, I can help them with that and certainly ways to prevent uh, injury to overcome injury, ways to improve health in general, where, whether it is uh, concerning diet or things that we sometimes forget about like resting properly, uh, you know, active recovery. And, you know, what's great about my job is that it's amazing how many little things that the lay person doesn't think about like, hey, you know, uh, I travel, I can't fit in those seats, even though they're first class seats. What do I do to take care of, for example, my knees after I'm stuck on a flight for two and a half hours? How can I prevent that soreness from occurring or what can I do after the game so that I don't have to suffer during the flight? I mean, that's just one example of many that makes my job a lot of fun. So, you know, I'm taking someone who's already at the top of their game and and trying to get a little bit, a fraction of a percent, you know, more out of them.
0: Yeah, and we, we talked a little bit about this before we came on, which is, I think that idea and that kind of like holistic approach to being a healthy athlete is really kind of being shown not so much by the Pelicans because they're so young but if you look at another New Orleans athlete in Drew Brees 41 years old you know he seems to be just defying all logic and convention with the rate he's playing at that age and I think you know the way athletes are looking at that type of medicine and how they approach their day-to-day is a pretty good indicator of that you know do, do you agree is that something that you'd, you'd say is holding true?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, like we talked a little bit about, these are guys that are living the dream, right? They're, they're playing a professional sport, something they enjoy more than just about anything else. And, of course, who wouldn't want to extend that for as long as possible? And so, you know, with new tricks, uh, part of regenerative medicine is, is trying to reverse the degeneration that not only naturally occurs, but can happen on the gridiron, the basketball court, whatever we're talking about. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you're hitting a sore spot here because I'm a doll fan. True, you know, tried and true. And we blew it with our Drew Brees pick. Hopefully, Tua makes up for it. But, yeah, I mean, you see a lot of guys that want to not only play better, but play longer. Absolutely.
0: You brought up Tua. I mean, Tua is a guy who he had a devastating injury, what, five months ago? And he's he's already back on the field, at least. You know, he he'd had a pro day, and he's out there running around. And, you know, I think that's the type of injury that five, 10 years ago might have been a career ending injury. And, but you see some of the advances we've made and I don't think it's a surprise that he got drafted, but if you look at it from when it happened, it was probably a third round pick, a flyer, you know, like Marcus Lattimore, after he tore his knees up, he still got drafted, but he got drafted in the fourth round. Is like, Hey, you know, if he can get back to hundred percent, maybe he will be a guy that can contribute to a, he went number five in the draft. I mean, he he might not have even gone any lower than he would have had he not been injured. And I think that's fascinating, uh, just how quickly players can recover. Zion Williamson's is another example of a guy who you look at and it's like, a guy 285 pounds jumping 40, 45 inches in the air. That's just, you know, it just blows your mind. And you have to wonder, like, how does that hold
1: up? And at that weight, like, yeah, you're talking about two different examples of something that's, you know, both of which are fascinating in the first case with Tua, you know, finally we've got a lot more information about how to do things right. And one of the main things with him that I've noticed not taking away from him at all, because first of all, you got to get, have a good head on your shoulders, but the people around him, I think most importantly have not pushed him too quickly. If you follow him, which I have, not just because I was hopeful With the Dolphins pick, but you know, he's a great kid. And of course he played for Bama. If you watch some of his film, he's not trying to get back too quickly. He's doing it very smartly and being patient. And I think that's going to be key for him. When you've got a guy who's as heavy as Zion is running the times he's running, that's more freakish. And you want to approach him a different way. I think like you're suggesting you know, what can we do to, to, to make sure that this can continue because it's not natural to put that much load on a joint. If you do something improperly, your, if your balance is off, just your, your muscle balance is off. You can have a more drastic injury, a more drastic result, no matter what you do. So yeah, two different types of athletes we're dealing with both, you know, obviously fascinating to watch and, and it will be a pleasure, but um, yeah.
0: And it feels like, it feels like ages ago, that the biggest concern was, well, why has Zion's recovery from his meniscus surgery taken three, four weeks longer than it was initially expected to? But I, I think it's that's, that's exactly what was going on. It's like it's not just okay, how can he recover from this specific surgery? It's okay, how can we make sure that this is something that long term is helpful and not rushing back? And then all of a sudden, you know, like uh, Demarcus Cousins tore his Achilles and then he came back and he tore his hamstring. It's I think it's very easy to kind of rush people back into the flow of things and then you see these recurring injuries down the road that are based on, you know, okay, he's running a little differently because he never really recovered from this one injury and then it causes, it's just a cascading effect.
1: People think that more is better. So if you have, for example, this is a simple case, more muscle, well, then you're better protected or you're better in general because isn't muscle what you want more of? Well, no, your knee certainly doesn't. It's still weight. And whether you carry it in the form of fat or you carry it in the form of muscle, it still is pressure, if you will, in the meniscus. So that's kind of the common misconception that comes with these athletes is, you know, you figure, well, he's more sturdy because he's, you know, 315 pounds of solid muscle. In some ways, yes, but in some ways he's less sturdy because the knee meniscus is still a knee meniscus and it's set up for someone, you know, Anatomic male is still defined for what it's worth as, you know, 154 pounds at five, I think it's five nine. Well, that's not, No, nobody in the NFL or the NBA even comes close to looking like that. So, it, you know, these are considerations that a lot of people don't think about, but you, you have to, if you want to keep a guy in the game.
0: I think I compared it once to like jumping off a ladder with a weight rack on your shoulders. <laughs> it's just, it's, the, it's not even the jumping, it's the landing. You know that that's the fun part of what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, the the less fun part is the part that everyone has heard about, you know, ad nauseum, which is coronavirus. Everything's shut down. Uh, some states are beginning to to reopen parts of their economy. Some are ahead of others. The NBA is planning to allow teams in states that are allowing them to do that to reopen their facilities. I believe May eighth is the target date right now. What are you seeing in terms of where we are at is is in the country in terms of coronavirus. Do you think that we're at a point that that's a smart move to make from the NBA?
1: Well, I can't judge smart necessarily because there's a lot of opinion involved in that rather than reason, and that's probably not a fair statement either. I think what this is going to boil down to is what amount of risk are we willing to assume for – the benefits, and that's also subjective, of getting back and playing sport. You know, benefits being for for a morale uh, standpoint to a financial standpoint, whether it's the players or, you know, the owners, um, broadcasting stations, all that sort of thing. Uh, It's kind of what the entire country is going through right now in terms of determining, you know, how much we're willing to open up the country. In terms of the logistics and medically speaking what can happen, I'll disclaim up front, I'm an eternal optimist, but I don't think even if we take away, you know, my penchant for being optimistic, uh, I won't say it's, it's hard or not hard, but it's definitely doable. We have testing available. That's one of the things that people harp on is, oh, we can't test. We can't get enough testing done to protect these athletes. Remember, it's just the athletes and the group that's associated with the athletes, meaning and that's a subjective line. Where do we draw the line? Is it, you know, with the staff? Or is it with, uh, in other words, the team staff? Or do we draw the line at hotel employees too, where the where athletes are gonna be staying in these, what do they call them, biospheres or biodomes or whatever? Um, I think but the fun no matter how is
0: bubble cities. I think that's- Bubble <laughs> cities? <laughs> yeah.
1: I think whether it's 5,000 or 10,000, it's not 50,000 people we're dealing with here. And the testing is available for those. And that's a linchpin for all of this. People, I think, are a little confused because when you hear national talk about testing, unrelated to sports, just, hey, let's get the country back on its feet. Yeah, we're, we don't have enough testing available for 500,000 people a day. That is true. But for uh, you know, a situation where, whether it's the NBA or Major League Baseball that wants to get back in the game, we can do that part of it.
0: Yeah, I think the availability of testing is a really interesting topic. And you kind of look at it as, it's it, there's two parts to it. One is, can it be done? And the second part is, should it be done? Which, you know, I think that the NBA is very conscious of the reaction that's going to come out. If, say, they allot X number of tests so that the NBA can get back to business and they, they feel comfortable. And there's there can't be a shortfall somewhere else where you know, at-risk communities aren't, don't have enough testing, you know, and, that's, and whether that's true or not, that's going to be the, the narrative around it. I think there's, that's the concern of going into it early at the point that how do you answer those questions? The other part of it is the speed at which you can turn around those test results because if the testing is available, that's one thing. If you're not getting the results back fast enough and you're trying to play a game every other day, and you're not getting a test back within 48 hours then you someone tests positive and everybody he played against on the court in that game two days ago is all of a sudden now potentially infected so to me that's the biggest bridge that i can't get over is uh the the speed at which you can figure out whether someone has it or not so you can at least react to it
1: well with the tests we have right now, and I'm not talking about the rapid tests, which are being criticized left and right and with good reason, the laminar flow tests, kind of like a pregnancy testing kit. Right. We have laboratory testing available. For example, my office uses access medical labs. They've been around for 17 years, but there's other national companies out there that are now providing the same relatively rapid turnaround. 24 hours. Once it reaches the laboratory is, is typical. And again, we're not talking about uh, something that's, Loosey goosey. We're talking about something that has, in layman's terms, we would, we would call it accuracy, but in medical terms, high specificity and high sensitivity. So it, it, it's rare you're going to have an, a result that you can't count on, and that brings up something else. It should all be taken in context uh, because it's not all 100%. But remember that these guys are going to be covering their bases presumably in this bubble – that we've designed, is everyone going to be compliant? You hope that they intend to be compliant, but people are going to make mistakes and maybe find ways to introduce the virus into the bubble that we didn't think about. But, you know, this is not new to sport. Remember, we've got guys that are, for example, fighting that are in contact sports, obviously, and they're signing uh, agreements to say, Hey, look, we understand what we're getting into here. And this goes back to the risk reward analysis. You know, I'm not going to hold you liable. You don't hold me liable. And we're going to do the best we can here to mitigate any damage potential uh, by implementing the test daily, regularly, and, you know, following up with anyone you might've come in contact with and trying to do the best we can to to staunch this once we find out what we do find out within a day or two. Uh, Your point about taking resources away from the community is one that's actually the first time it's been brought up. It's, it's, it, at least in my conversations, I didn't think about that. Is that going to be something that is going to cause some backlash in the community because, Oh, well, these, these high-priced athletes are getting these tests. Okay. I, I don't know how to respond to that, but I'm just going to say, yeah, you make a good point. Um, I, I well, only, I only, I only mentioned take- that
0: because it is something that did happen when it all, you know, when Rudy Gobert was the first NBA player to test positive, really, it's it really kind of fascinating to look back and to see everyone was was kind of ramping up, like, okay, this is serious, this is serious. But it, until the NBA kind of just said, mm, it didn't really reach that fever pitch of like, okay, we really have to cancel stuff, we have to no more large crowds, and it all kind of built from there. Um, but I think it was the Kings who caught some some backlash initially because they were able to get tests done and that was at a point where there was very limited testing supply. And there was a question like, well, is it, are you able to get testing because you have more money and whether that was true or not? And I, I don't know, but I, that, that's the, you know, that's what I'm basing that kind of groupthink reaction that I think you would end up getting at least from, you know, the loud people on social media and, and, uh, and it just snowballs from there. Because it all, it could be a failure to launch if, if that ends up being like too loud, you know, and then all of a sudden it's just, it blows up, uh, but yeah.
1: Well, as a side note, and it really isn't addressing the group think that I think a lot of this boils down to, it's not so much a medical issue in my mind anyway. I think a lot of it can be addressed and solved the, the potential problems from a medical perspective, but from a a group think, a political and ethical, moral uh, discussion standpoint, yeah, we have we have different considerations, and, and I don't think there is a, a right answer. But some of that testing can be mitigated by the use of what we call serology tests. So we've got the molecular tests, which you hear about the PCR testing, where they're actually testing for the virus presence itself. But then we also have serology testing, which is testing for antibodies, the body's reaction to the virus. And once we find players that have an antibody to the virus, we can separate those and spare resources because those players will no longer have to be tested. Uh, Now, some people who are keeping up with coronavirus may say, well, wait a minute, the WHO, the World Health Organization, says there's no guarantee that someone who has antibodies to the coronavirus will be protected from reinfection. Well, that is technically true because we don't know it's a brand new virus. But if it's like every other virus we have ever seen, you know, we expect that there'll be some immunity conferred for at least months if not years or possibly forever. Uh, it may be something like influenza where it mutates every year and we have to try and build something uh, at a vaccine, in other words, that tries to cover for the mutations and it might work sort of or it might not. But my point here is that um, if, if we go with what we know thus far and there's a very, very high likelihood that if someone has antibodies they'll be protected from at least infection, another infection during the season from a mutation. That will relieve a lot of resources for those players directly and also indirectly because the the things that you have to do for that player will be different than those who still have yet to be infected.
0: And you know, I think that's a that's a really good point, which is it's, it's almost kind of comical how little I feel like we really do know about coronavirus and we, we know about what it's doing right now, we know about how you become infected and that sort of thing, but I think there's a lot of unknowns in terms of a year down the road, two years down the road and, and how this all plays out and you, you see these massive organizations, the entire economy really is trying to make decisions based on projections and, and what we think might happen and <laughs> we really don't know. I think the, the antibodies part of it is really interesting. And uh, Sean Payton, uh, the Saints coach, was I think he was the first NFL representative, one way or the other, that, that was publicly announced that he was infected. Whether there was already some, there, there have been other NFL infections and they just were not announced. That's impossible to know. But uh, he went and he donated plasma. I'm not a doctor, so I'm speaking in generalities, but I think that's important in terms of how you, you're able to treat people It who looks are promising. Infected? I mean, do you have any insight into that? I, I was, I don't really, I can't say I fully understand, you know, what the benefits of donating plasma are, why you would do that.
1: Right now it looks promising along with, you know, the results with Remdesivir, uh, Gilead's product that two days ago, uh, the study showed that we could reduce the time with the virus from 15 days to 11 days and reduce mortality by roughly 2.6%, I think it is. So that brings up another point to all this, which is as time goes on. And by the way, couldn't agree more. That is the biggest issue right now is that we just don't know enough. And that's why there's so much confusion with these models because we're, we're, we're modeling. And if you have a small percentage difference in the direction you're going from the, the start in a model, then you know when you project it outwards, it can be logarithmically different where you end up, right? And, and that's what's creating so much confusion because we just don't have enough data to get our hands or our arms around this virus. So we're making a lot of guesses. And you know the old expression, garbage in, garbage out. And it's leading us down some really, um, well, different ways of looking at what, what, what we're up against. Now, as things progress in terms of our knowledge of this virus, we're finding out, it looks like a lot more people are getting infected than we thought. That's actually a good thing. Uh, the transmissibility is higher, but it means it increases the denominator, so that the deadliness, the fatality rate per person infected, the, the IFR, infection fatality rate, will be much lower. That's actually good news.
0: So let me let me just make sure I am understood. So you're basically, because the the infection rate is a lot larger than we are even aware of, you know, whereas we are aware of high, a much higher percentage of the total deaths versus the total cases we know about, the mortality rate, fatality rate, whatever you want to call it, is actually lower than it appears. Is is That's what you're referring to there.
1: Right. Well, there's people that argue about the the, the numerator, the number of deaths. They're saying some of them are underreported because people are afraid to even go to the ER because they're not sure they're sick. And so if they go to the, the ER, they figure, well, then I'll for sure be sick because everyone who goes to the ER has COVID-19 right now. And so on that end, they're saying it's undercounted. On the other side of that argument, though, is one that I think has as much justification, certainly maybe more, that we're overcounting COVID-19 deaths because uh, just like with flu, if someone becomes sick and they have, say, congestive heart failure, if the strain is too much that they die from congestive heart failure, they're still being labeled a death from COVID-19. So if I'm, uh, let's say uh, I run out of gas in my car and I've got congestive heart failure and I start hiking back to a gas station and I keel over because of congestive heart failure, what's my cause of death? Running out of gas or congestive heart failure? You follow me? Because they tested for COVID-19, and there's some other things that have nothing to do with conspiracy theories, by the way. But it's the way the world works, where there is some motivation for hospitals to classify it as a COVID-19 death. They might be overcounting the, the, the number of deaths related to COVID-19. But then again, you know what? At the end of the day, it, it would be difficult to tease that out anyway. You know, What was it that really was the true cause of death? And, and at some point, who cares? Certainly the guy or gal who's dead doesn't and their family but I'm just saying in terms of understanding the virus, it is important. But what's, what's overwhelming to all of that is the denominator. What we found, for example, in the, the recent releases regarding certain prisons, and of course we had the cruise ship early on, is that these controlled environments, meaning when I say controlled, they're environments we haven't manipulated. I should say it the other way around, uncontrolled environments. you we argue, well, they're controlled, you threw these people in jail. But what I mean is it wasn't, we didn't choose which patients to look at they looked at all the patients in these prison systems they tested all of them and they found out that the number of infections was roughly 94 to 96 percent of the population and yet most people had no idea that they were infected and of course that increases the the denominator the number of people infected and that makes the the number of deaths per uh, person infected much lower I know it sounds bad, but it's actually encouraging in terms of the deadliness of the virus. Does that make and, sense?
0: Yeah, and uh, and so that's and that's something that you can use antibody testing to kind of get a better handle on, correct? Because you're not going to you're typically not testing asymptomatic people, but if you get an antibody test and you have anti- antibodies for COVID nineteen, it typically would mean you had it and you didn't. You may not have even known it. And that will that give us a better idea of that that denominator, like you're talking about?
1: Yes, because who's going to go get tested necessarily if they don't have symptoms, right? Well, I think oh, there's a lot,
0: of, <laughs> a lot of people who think they have symptoms even if they don't. and I, I think that's part of the reason you don't test asymptomatic cases because every hypochondriac in the world will, you know, will be like, oh, I think I have it, I'm going to go get tested. And then you do overwhelm the testing uh, infrastructure that we have in the, in the healthcare infrastructure.
1: I'm sorry. Right, and that leads to something that that we call statistical bias, which is why these prison systems, these studies are invaluable because you don't have those those biases, whether it's hypochondria or lack of availability of testing, and many other biases that we sometimes can't account for. Sometimes we can we can try and give a range and try and account for them, uh, but you know we didn't do we didn't have to worry about as many biases. With the prison system testing, uh, we tested everybody. And so, you know, the hypochondriac didn't get head of the line, so to speak, or someone didn't get left out because they're afraid to get a needle poke and that sort of thing. Uh, so it gives us very valuable information that hopefully will be incorporated into these models and give us a better idea of, of uh, a more accurate idea of where we're going with this virus.
0: Now, if we could just kind of loop back around here, I, I am curious. So, whatever the The NBA has bandied out the concept of these bubble cities. I don't know if that's going to be what they even try to pull off if they try to pull off something. But what do you think that a return to sports before there is, you know, a vaccine is is feasible? In your medical opinion, would you say that what what would you classify it as? Do you think that it's even something that's is it a pipe dream? Is it something that you think might actually happen, or you know, is it just something that you know we're just it's nice to talk about, but at the end of the day we're probably looking at quite a while before we even consider bringing these these leagues back.
1: Well, again, I have to preface it by saying it depends upon the amount of risk we're willing to take. I believe it's going to happen because medically it's feasible to reduce the amount of risk to something I think most would be willing to assume. But also because along with that, I mean, for example, today a lot of states are opening up. Right? It may be the case that in a month's time or maybe two months, depending upon the date, I know it changes, when um, you know we're actually playing games, and I know we're talking about just a week away from actually starting practice, but we may find out that even in a week, not months, the rules that we're enforcing in the NBA in these bubbles is much stricter than for the public at large. So is that being reckless, or are we being even more protective than everybody else? Right. And along with that, you mentioned a vaccine that could be 12, 18 months out. People are arguing that you might have an emergency release or authorization for uh, a vaccine before that, which is not necessarily recommended. There's a reason why we wait a long period. It's not because we're not sure if it works against the virus. It's that we're not sure what else might happen. Yeah, it might do great on the virus, but it might destroy your kidneys a year a year from now. And we didn't. Oh, who knew? And we don't want to have that happen. But whether that's 12 or 18 months away is not as, I think, consequential as I'd mentioned remdesivir earlier. We may have other treatments that come up between now and a month or two that, again, will make this less of a a strained decision. You know, it'll be a lot easier to go, wow, geez, okay, we have a 97% cure rate. Who cares? But again, I think the the, the main point of, of that is the NBA, the MLB, they may be doing things more so than the public at large, which will take away a lot of that criticism, wouldn't you think?
0: Oh, I mean, it's it's tough because you, you're not only looking at the leagues, you're also looking at kind of the regionality of it. You know, like uh, New Orleans is not going to open the Pelicans practice facility, or I guess it's in Metairie technically, which is a suburb. They're not going to open the practice facility on May 8th. I mean, the, the stay-at-home order in the state is until May 15th. So it, whereas, you know, I think Atlanta or Georgia in general, they opened up they, they already they announced long before that they would be opening up their facilities. They opened up bowling alleys and hair salons and all that. And in, in New Orleans it's like no. <laughs> or the governor, you know, loosened some of the social distancing restrictions to allow for outdoor dining at restaurants, uh, like unstaffed outdoor dining. And in New Orleans that is not happening. You know, the mayor has been very vocal about, you know, making sure that we're just abundantly cautious and so that's going to be a factor in terms of okay these these teams in Louisiana can't can't practice and here's here's something that I think you could you could touch on really well is like it's not just going to be okay we reopen and they start playing it takes time I think the Pelicans GM David Griffin said something along the lines of it's like 21 days is is like a time frame that it would take to really get these players back into playing shape and I think that's probably on the low end of what you'd want as a, as a team, making sure that you're not risking injury by just bringing these players back because it's, it, it makes sense for the league. So I I think that's a big part of it. And what, what, what would your take be on that?
1: Absolutely. It's a, it's it's part of the conversation that doesn't come up that much, except I can say, uh, well, first of all, my swath, I think cuts a pretty broad uh, group from guys in their, you know, early 20s all the way up to, I think maybe my oldest pro might be about, I think it's 38, 39. I can't say that it represents all the guys and gals, but I can say that without exception, the conversation starts, hey, Rand, what can I do for myself and my family to avoid getting sick? But then after three, five minutes of that, it's 15 or 20 minutes of, hey, how can I stay in shape? What can I do at home? You know, I can't get to the training facility. What can I do so I don't uh, fall out of shape? I don't know anyone unless they're fibbing with me that's sitting around on the couch, squeezing beer cans in the off season. I mean, these guys are playing a sport. They love they, everyone wants to get back without exception with the players that I've dealt with. And I've, I've told them, I said, look, if you guys are doing what you're doing, which is to stay in at least, you know, uh, 70% of your usual capacity, six weeks is a fair assessment of what it would take to get back to a hundred percent, uh, three weeks. Yeah. If if your guys over there, you know the Pelican team is is doing what they should be on their own at home, that's aggressive but doable. But just to be safe, I'd say six. Now I think a lot of it depends upon playing together too. When you're talking about being game ready, physically, yeah, six weeks for sure. But what about being able to to time your pass properly? You know these guys have to practice together, and I think that's more to the point. At least with the guys I'm working with about uh, that you're making about, you know, okay, if this city is not letting them back in for another month, they're giving an unfair advantage or one is given an unfair advantage to the cities that are getting back in the training facility a month earlier to be able to practice with their teammates, right? Because it's a skills game.
0: (laughs) I, I think that, you know, one of the few things that we can say for certain is that if and when the NBA comes back, there will be some very ugly basketball played <laughs> for a few weeks. <laughs> It'll be preseason uh, plus a lot of heavy breathing.
1: Well, again, I go back to, I'm going to start thinking about that now. I, I you know, to me, it's always been, you know, the linchpin in this has been the testing and, and, and that is available. So anyone who says it's not feasible logistically or otherwise it, it is feasible and there's a cost involved. I mean, it might be about 250 bucks, per player to get both tests done, that'll go down once someone tests positive because then, you know, for IgG that is, because then you won't have to test them anymore. But, you know, to take away from others that again, that's a, yeah, that's a societal question, I guess, you know, and then how important is it for us? I mean, I guess the counter to that argument now that I'm riffing here is, These guys are trying to make a living just like everybody else. This is how they put food on their table. So why should they be, what, penalized just because they make more at their living presumably than some of the others that we're suggesting might not get the testing? The average person, right? These guys have to make a living too. And uh, this is their getting back to work and staying fit so they can continue to work. I don't know if that argument will fly, but it's one. Uh, but, you, you, know, I, you know, I think you touched on, on the main things. Look, it's a contact sport. You know, we might find that other sports like certainly tennis or golf are going to have an easier time getting back to normal. And I say normal still without the fans until we have other uh, breakthroughs with this virus. Baseball is kind of a hybrid because while well, for the most part it's non-contact, there's still slides in the home, and that sort of thing. But, but the more, you know, the contact sports like we're talking about here, certainly NBA, it's a little bit more of a challenge and you'll have to ask the players to be more compliant, a little more tolerant with some of the restrictions, but I certainly think it's doable.
0: Yeah. And I think uh, like the, when you say contact sports, I I think the the risk there isn't so much like, Oh, they're, they're going to get it because they're bumping into each other. But if one person has it and doesn't know, then the odds of them spreading it are way higher than, you know, the center fielder from the Red Sox who isn't going to come into contact with the, First baseman, unless they, you know, give them a high five after a double or a single. Um, but the other, the other element, which is kind of a way outside of what we, what we are probably need to be talking about, is just, you know, if you do that and you kind of sequester the entire, you know, how many teams? Sixteen teams, the playoff field, and whatever, you know, what happens if? You know, player A says, I don't feel comfortable doing this. I don't want to leave my family for that long. I don't think this is uh, – I don't – but he's under. He's a professional. He's on the contract. How, do you compel that person to go? You know, what, what? how does that work? You know, there's a lot of questions. I mean, like I said before, I think <laughs> it's comical how little we really do know in terms of how a lot of this is working out. And it's a fun thing to talk about at the – you know, when it's like, oh, can we put all these teams in a bubble? But, you know, until until we get further along, it's almost – it's just, who knows?
1: There are still a lot of unknowns, but fortunately, the whole world is attentive to what's going on here, not just us, really, literally the whole world is. So answers are popping up uh, every day from like uh, recently, uh, even yesterday and today, there's a lot published about the different mutations, and they've got them analyzed down to you know, the RNA level and, uh, to see what are the consequences of the mutation and how far it's mutating. So I I think for what it's worth in the next 30 days or so, we'll have 10 times more information than we did the previous 30 days. I mean, it certainly will be logarithmic uh, almost daily. You could argue how much we learn from this because we have devoted so many resources to it. And so far the news is only getting better. I mean, even those who don't, know that much about the medicine or the virus itself can look and see that whether it's because of social distancing and or the virus nature itself we have done what we tried to do which is to flatten the curve which goes back to something we really haven't touched on but is important why did we do all this sequestering it wasn't to just say hey we don't want anyone to get sick it was because what we needed to flatten the curve which meant we didn't want anybody to die because we didn't have the resources to do the best we can to work with them. Otherwise, why wouldn't we have shut down every year since we knew about influenza? Because uh, depending upon what count you, you you look at, 61,000 people in the United States died of the influenza virus last year, right? Mm-hmm. But we didn't shut everything down because, I you know again, ostensibly the reason was because we could care for as best we could and feel like, hey, we did the best we could. But the flu got you. Your number was up, so to speak. Um, And it wasn't because, you know, we we failed at treating you that you died. In this case, we have gotten to the goal of not having to turn someone away, not treat them because we didn't have the ability to do so. So how is this going to I mean, I'm just throwing this out there. Right. In terms of what you refer to as the group think. And how we might, I uh, hate to use the word, but rationalize getting back to, to business or NBA. We, we've accomplished that goal. So um, I, I think that'll work in our favor for getting the NBA back out there.
0: It's a good point. I mean, I think that it started as like, okay, what do we have to do to, to flatten the curve, which is kind of a popular buzzword that I kind of feel like has lost a lot of meaning in terms of what it's actually supposed to mean. But it, it, And then it kind of moved to okay, this is just indefinite, we're going to keep doing this until it doesn't, you know, until we figure out a better option. But at a certain point, you do have to make decisions and say, okay, well, we've, we're at a point that we've done what we had to do. Now, what what do we do next? It can't just be everyone sitting at home for the next 18 months, you know, to an extent, I think that has to happen. But you also have to start making decisions based on the viability of of. of concepts and daily life and, and move on from there. But there is, there's a lot of interesting uh, discussions on that front. I think that's, I think that's all for me. Uh, again, this is Dr. Rand McLean. I appreciate you taking the time. This has been a really illuminating and enjoyable conversation.
1: My pleasure, Jeffrey. Anytime. I enjoyed it too. Thank you very much.